to the UNT BSM audio resources. If you want more information on the BSM, you can go to untbsm.com. Thanks for listening. Okay. So as I said, this is going to be kind of the... Um, this is round two, the encore presentation of our equipping, equipping seminar, Is the Bible Trustworthy? What this is going to look like is we're going to do, um, we're going we're gonna to work a little bit through uh, a broad understanding of how should we, what should we think about the Bible, and then um, what I wanted to do is sort of just structure this in a way where we talk about together, I answer some of the biggest questions that I get when... Uh, I'm talking about the Bible with people on campus and some of the biggest objections that I get. So we're going to hopefully overcome those. And then uh, there should be some time at the end for some questions, if you guys have some questions. And I might throw in a couple of other questions that I hear myself. So uh, we're going we're gonna to just jump in. And I'm going to have all of the verses that we're going to use up here on the screen because we're going to jump around quite a bit. So if you want to flip around your Bibles, that's fine. But if you don't want to... We'll have them all written out on the screen up here for you. So, um, I don't know who all's in the room right now. I think I know most of you guys. But um, if you have been going to church and you've kind of been raised up in an evangelical background, you've been taught to say something like, it's not about a religion, it's about a relationship. You heard that before? That we have a relationship with God. And, and we are very quick to announce, no, I have a relationship with God through Jesus. And so I want to ask you a question. How do relationships work? If you're sitting in a class and there is a guy or a girl on the other side of your class that you noticed like on the first day and they walked in and you thought, man, that, that guy or gal is pretty cute. And you, you want to have a relationship with that person. Are you just going to be content to say, wow, that person seems really neat, and I'm going to stay over here the whole time, and we're never going to have any interactions. But we exist in the same plane of existence. We know maybe about it. At least I know something about them. Is that what you would call a relationship? Is that what makes something a relationship? No, what you want is what you want is for that person to notice you and to get up I used to have this. I used to daydream about this. You know, like there would be a cute girl in the class, and, then, and I'd have that daydream that she would get up and she would walk across the room, and she would come up to me, and she would what? She would start talking, and she would say something like, "Hey, I've I've noticed you. <laughs> I wanted to say something to you. I want to initiate a relationship. That relationships are all about talking, aren't they? I've been married for." over three years, and I know what happens when I am not talking to my wife. I know what happens to my relationship. Okay, so for all that we're in, it's, we're right to say that we're supposed to have a relationship with God. That's right. But I think we forget how much relationships are dependent on communicating with one another. And if that's true, that relationships are dependent on communicating, and that is true, and it's true that we have a relationship with God, then it must be true that we can and should communicate with God. And that's exactly what we find. That, that we do not have a God who is just far off somewhere, who made everything and then has sort of left us here to try and 
feel around and figure them out. You know, or to maybe reason and think our thoughts about what God is like and to come to our conclusions. That's not what we find. And I think, unfortunately, a lot of people today, that's how they think about God. That God doesn't talk to us, but we are on this quest to try and maybe somehow, I don't know, figure out what God might possibly maybe be like for me. But is that how... No. Relationships are built on communication. And this is what we find when we look at the Judeo-Christian understanding of God. This is Amos chapter 4, verse 13. Amos is a prophetic book in the Old Testament. And listen to this. This is talking about God. And it says, For behold, he who forms the mountains and creates the wind. So who's that? He who forms the mountains and creates the wind? God. Okay? God that made everything. Okay, we can all be agreed on that. Okay, there's a God that made everything. Well, look at what this God that made everything does. It says, He declares to man what is his thought. That's huge. He who forms the mountains and creates the wind declares to man what is his thought. This is the nature of our God, that the Creator God thinks thoughts... Okay, he's a personality, not a force. He has his own thoughts, and he communicates his thoughts to man. In our church, we, we have the little Sunday school, and we have them memorize verses, or like shortened versions of verses. This was the very first verse that we had our, have our students memorize. In a, in a different form, we have them memorize, The Lord reveals his thoughts to man. Say that. Say that. Repeat after me. The Lord reveals his thoughts to man. The Lord reveals his thoughts to man. Do it again. The Lord reveals his thoughts to man. The Lord reveals his thoughts to man. Okay. We make our little kids do that. Why? Because this matters. This is important. That we have a God who speaks. He reveals his thoughts to us. And isn't that good news? Again, that we're not left to just wonder and figure out God. But how does God reveal his thoughts to man? Well, we've, we've seen, okay, that there have been instances where God has actually broken into time and space and spoken directly to certain people. But does, is that what we should expect? Is that what ha- God's never broken into time and space and spoken audibly to me. And yet I know that I have a God who reveals his thoughts to man. So how does God reveal his thoughts to me? Well, actually, Amos talks about that. And Amos is a great example because Amos was a prophet. Amos was a sheep sheep herder, and God revealed himself to Amos and said, Amos, tell everybody else what I'm telling you. This is what Amos chapter 3 verse 7 says, that for the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. So already in Amos, we see this idea of God using prophets to reveal what are otherwise his secret thoughts. God uses man to be the mouthpiece to communicate his thoughts to other people. And not only that, that what happened as the Hebrews, who are the early people of God, the people that God first started revealing himself to and talking to and using prophets to speak to, not only did they speak in their time, but what they did and what God often told them to do and what they created a culture of doing was writing down the most important things that God said or the things that God led them to write down, writing down the history of God's interacting with 
these people. And so they were writing these things down. And as they were writing down the word of God, they recognized together as a community that these words that were written down have more to do than just what men are writing down. That this is how God has revealed his thoughts to man through the prophets to any and everyone who would read these scriptures. And it came to take on the significance of being not just the word of man, but the word of God. And we know that that's true because when we get to the New Testament, we get guys like Peter who are writing about their understanding of what's going on in the scriptures. Okay? Peter He says, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. He's saying it's more fully confirmed because everything that was written down in the Old Testament we have seen has come true in Jesus and stuff's continuing to happen. And so he says, we have even more hope in these scriptures that have been written down. He says, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention. This is a great verse just for us. Pay attention to the word as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's 2 Peter chapter 1, 19-21. No prophecy comes from man's own interpretation, was not produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So if I were to write something with this pen, okay, would I write it down and then say, oh, look at what this pen wrote? No, okay? Even though... Did, did I make the ink come out of my own fingers? No. I used the pen as a tool to write that down. Okay? But the pen was carried along by me as I'm speaking through it. That is what a prophet is. That is what the scriptures are. That they're not the word of men, but they're men that have been carried along by God to speak what God wants them to say. And just like this pen, this, this is a black pen. It's not a blue pen. It's not a red pen. So there are things that are unique and different about this pen than another pen that I could have used. This pen isn't a great pen. It's kind of a cheap pen. So it gets a little splotchy and sometimes the ink runs out sometimes. And there's, there's differences about it. The, the width of the ball is a certain point. Okay, If I used a different pen, maybe it would be wider. If I used another pen, it would be finer. But this pen has unique characteristics. And so it is with the scriptures. Because the scriptures were all written by men. And so those men have different personalities. They have different vocabulary. They spoke in different languages. All of the writers in the Old Testament were writing in Hebrew or in Aramaic, mostly in Hebrew. And all the writers in the New Testament were writing in Greek. And they had different uh, levels of education. They had different experiences. They had different ways that they liked to talk. They had certain words. If you really study it, you find that certain people use certain words over and over again in the scriptures. All of those little idiosyncrasies come out... But it doesn't change the fact that it's the same person writing the same message. I could write with 14 different pens and you'd see all the different colors and the different widths and the different, but it's still me writing. As men are carried along by the Spirit. Does that make sense? And what is it that they're carrying along? Well, we just saw that this is Paul talking in 2 Timothy chapter 3. 
And he is himself going to talk about the nature of these things, this scripture. He says, As for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So what we see there in Peter and Paul is both of these men have an understanding of these writings. And actually what's interesting is if you read, you remember um, Paul says, remember the, the sacred writings with which you've been acquainted since you were a youth. He's writing to Timothy. When Timothy was a youth, the New Testament didn't exist. Paul is writing him the New Testament as they're talking right now. So what Paul is specifically referring to when he says, remember the sacred writings, is the Old Testament. Okay? And so he's saying, remember the Old Testament. And how does he describe it? He says it's breathed out by God. Paul actually had to come up with a new word in Greek. It's theopneustos. He took the word for God, and he took the word breath, and he put them together, and he made a new word. It's God breath. It's breathed out by God. That's where the word inspiration is... Breathing it has that idea of breathing, that it's God-breathed. It's the Word of God coming out, and it's profitable. It makes you wise. And so he's talking about the Old Testament, but we see Peter and Paul, two first-century Jewish people, that had that understanding of the Bible, that it's Scripture. And then what's amazing, as Peter starts referring to Paul as being Scripture, okay, in Second Peter. So he's saying that all of these New Testament books that are being written, they are taking on that same understanding of being Scripture, to which Paul has just said is the very Word of God, the breath of God. Does that make sense? And all of that, remember, is God using words to reveal his thoughts to man. So I want to just point this out before we really dive, in, dive into certain objections to that. Um, that if you're here and you're a Christian, you say you have a relationship with God. How's your relationship going? Is it a relationship that's built on communication? Okay. Are you listening to God? Do you and God talk? And that's not to uh, call into question whether or not you're a Christian, although that might. But more, I want this time. If we, if we do nothing in this time but, but just learn about certain arguments that we can give when that person in our class objects to whatever we're saying, but... You don't think about this amazing reality that you have a God that talks to you. And you're not encouraged to go and listen to him. Listen from him. Then we missed something. Okay? God has revealed himself to us. We're not left alone to try and figure this out. We're not left wondering. But he has revealed to us secrets. And I love that. So if nothing else, I hope this encourages you to spend more time reading your Bible. But I also hope that um, it encourages you and you feel equipped to go and talk to other people about this amazing book that we have. Because everybody's calling it into question, aren't they? All the time. Even uh, today at free lunch, our director, Stephanie Gates, was having a conversation with a gentleman. And he was flabbergasted that she actually believed that all of the Bible was true. That was the nature. He was like, wait, you really think the whole Bible is the word of God? And she was like, yeah. And he had all kinds of questions about that. So we live in a culture, don't we, that is, that is and maybe you yourself are asking those questions. That's great. I want to show you um, this. This is a quote from Newsweek magazine. OK? 
okay? Uh, from an article, a big, big cover story that they did in 2014. Listen to this. They say, no preacher has ever read the Bible. Neither has any evangelical politician. Neither has the Pope. Neither have I. And neither have you. Never read the Bible. At best, we've all read a bad translation. A translation of translations of translations. Of hand-copied copies of copies of copies of copies. And on and on hundreds of times. You ever heard that before? You ever heard people say that before? How can you trust the Bible? It's just a bunch of translations of translations of translations, copies of copies of copies. So this is the kind of stuff that I want us to really look at today because you are going to hear this all the time. And, and if that's true, then I can understand why we may think that the Bible is not trustworthy. But the question is, is it true? So I want to look at just a little bit of this because I think this is what we hear a lot. So first of all, what does he say? That it's translations of translations of translations. I, I would assume what they're talking about, and the problem that they're talking about that with there is, have you ever played telephone, played the game telephone, you know, where you like, you come up with something and you whisper it to the person next to you and then they whisper it down, 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 and then it gets to the end and it's hilarious because the person at the end is like, how did you even get there from where we started, you know? Um, and, and what they're assuming is that some similar processes happened with the Bible. So whatever was written down, what we have now has been so lost in translation that we can't trust it. Well, and, and if it was translations of translations of translations, that would be a problem. But it's not. And I don't exactly know what they're talking about, translations of translations. It's like what they're trying to imply, and when people say this, what they're implying, is that, well, it started in Greek, and then it got translated into Latin, and then it got translated into Spanish, and then it got translated into Portuguese, and then it got translated into French, and then it got translated into German, and then it got translated into English. And so in all of those processes, it got, you know, changed a little bit here and there, and that's not what happened. I don't know why they would say that that is what happened. Okay. At the worst, what they might be referring to is that some very old versions of the English Bible were translated from Latin, which was translated from the Greek or Hebrew. Okay. So a long time ago, when the Bible was written in Greek and Hebrew, okay, it was translated into Latin, and then we had Latin copies that we translated into English. Okay. So that might be what they're referring to. But even that, is that translations of translations of translations? No. That would be a translation of a translation. Okay? But that's not even... That, I said that's the worst case scenario. What we do now, if you have... Uh, my Bible is an English Standard Version Bible. If you have a New International Version Bible. If you have a New American Standard Bible. If you have a Revised Standard Version Bible. If you have an Amplified Bible. If you have any of the common... Even a New King James Bible. Okay? Any of the common English translations of the Bible right now. You know what they translated those from? Greek and Hebrew. They went back to the original language and translated it from that. So it's not a translation of a translation of a translation. It's a translation. Um, I kind of struck out with this example uh, a few 
when we did this, whatever that was last Friday. Is, does anybody in here know who Gabriel Garcia Marquez is? Is the, the politician? No, nope, not a politician. He's a writer. He won, uh, I believe he won the Nobel Prize for literature. Um, he's a writer. He wrote 100 Years of Solitude, uh, Love in the Time of Cholera, things like that. Oh, yeah, you know. Have you ever read Love in the Time of Cholera? I know, but I want to. Okay, well, that doesn't help us at all. Uh, we know the name. Okay, Gabriel Garcia Marquez is one of my favorite authors. Um, he's, he's an amazing author. He wrote all of his books in Spanish. Okay. But I read his books. They're great. In English. Am I left wondering, well, what did he really mean? What did he really... Now, there would be things that I would know better if I knew Spanish. But translation really isn't that hard. We do it all the time. Nobody has any problem. They give, they give Gabriel Garcia Marquez all kinds of awards for his books, even though they're originally written in Spanish. Okay? He's just celebrated across the United States as one of the greatest authors ever because translation is not that hard. We translate stuff all the time. Okay? Now, no, you're not going to get every nuance, and you're not going to get, but if you're a good translator, you're going to try and get that across as best as you can. And it's really not an issue. Okay? The same is true with the Bible. So, yes, it's a translation. Okay? But we do that all the time. And it's a translation from the original languages that it was written in. Not translations of translations of translations. Uh, when we were on Friday, uh, when, we were, when we did this last time on Friday, at that point, someone in the crowd leaned over to one of our students and said, well, can't use that argument anymore. And it's one that gets used a lot. And you can say with confidence, well, I don't know what you're referring to, but here's what I know is actually true about the Bible. So let's put that one to rest. But then what, about, what else do they say? So we know it's not translations of translations of translations, but then they say, but then it's translations of hand-copied copies of copies of copies of copies, and on and on hundreds of times. Hundreds of times. Now, I think there's something else of that sort of telephone idea in this, that as it gets copied over and over again, things get changed, they get left out, dropped, addition, you know, additions, omissions, things like that. Hundreds of times. So if you do it hundreds of times, it's like if you fax something back and forth hundreds of times, it's going to get totally garbled by the time you're done with it. We don't even use fax anymore. I don't know why I thought of that. But um, is that true? Again, that's the question. Is that true? Because that makes sense for us. In our mind, in a 21st century mind, uh, books and paper are insignificant, aren't they? Okay? Like, I, you know, printed all of this stuff out. I'm going to throw it away because it's saved on my computer. It doesn't matter. But we don't think of paper as something that's, that's lasting. And so if we're making copies of it, we better make – there's going to just be a lot of copies because it's going to get thrown away after a couple of months or something like that, you know, and so we're having to keep on. But we know that 2,000 years ago, 1,000 years ago, 500 years ago, paper books were almost priceless, okay, in certain ways. And so they thought very differently about paper, any kind of paper, any kind of book, but especially sacred writings, and they were recognizing, the early Christian community was recognizing that as these letters are going out, that they're coming with the authority and the inspiration of God, and they're making these copies. Yes, they're copying them, because they didn't have uh, copy makers, machines, to just you know, take facsimiles or download it. So yeah, they had to copy it to have it. Okay, But, interesting thing, there is a manuscript that we have. Manuscript is what you call 
the old documents that we've discovered, the old the old uh, writings that we have, the old copies of these things, these ancient manuscripts. There's a manuscript that we have that was written in 400 A.D. Okay, it was written in 400 A.D. We still have it. It's it was kept preserved. Actually, in the 10th century, so it was written in 400 A.D. 600 years later, they still had that copy because it was so valuable to them because they recognized that it was the inspired word of God. In the 10th century, 600 years after it was first written, they took ink and they re-inked it. They, they wrote on top of the letters so that they could, and they still have it. So that is one manuscript that has been in use as an authoritative copy of the scriptures for at least 1,600 years. Okay? They weren't just writing these copies and tossing them around and being real careless with them. They were, these things were valuable, precious. Does that make sense? Because that's going to factor in in a second. The other thing that we need to know about this idea of copies of copies of copies is we are not translating from copies that were written in the 1800s or the 1900s. Not copies that were written just 200 years ago. Copies of copies because... Saying it was written hundreds of times implies that, what, every century they probably wrote, they probably copied it like three or four times. And that, you know. But what we have done is we, to the best extent possible, go back to the earliest manuscripts that we have and we start there. And the earliest manuscripts of the Bible that we have come from the second century. Okay? That means... That means numbers that have a 1 in front of them. Okay? 125 A.D. is the best guess that we have for the oldest manuscript that we have. 125 A.D. Now that's pretty remarkable if you think that most of the Bible was written in the 50s and 60s A.D. Okay? Some books of the Bible weren't written until the 90s A.D. So if some of these books of the Bible were written in the 90s and the oldest copies of the Bible that we have were in 125... That's only like 30 years. Okay? Even if the books of the Bible that were written in the 50s or the 60s, and the best that we have is in 125, that's only 60 years. And we just said that we saw an example of one manuscript that we've had in use for 1,600 years. So they took care of these copies that they made. If you put kind of those two things together, and you think about it for a second... There's one scholar, a guy named Greg Gilbert, and he wrote a book called Why Trust the Bible, um, which I would really recommend. It's a, it's a little itty-bitty book, and he talks about a lot of this stuff. Um, and what he says in Why Trust the Bible, he argues that given the antiquity, so the ancientness of some manuscripts, combined with the fact that manuscripts were used and copied from for hundreds of years... It is very well within the realm of possibility that we have in our museums today copies of the originals. Full stop. You get the logic? These pieces of paper, these copies that they made were so important that they took very good care of them. And we have copies that go back to almost, or to at least 60 years within the writing of the original that what we probably have right now are copies of the original Bible. Full stop. So is it copies of copies of hand-copied copies hundreds of times? No. So again, 
That is an intellectually untenable position. We have some of the oldest manuscripts possible. And then you stop and you think about it. It gets even, it gets even better than that. Because not only are these religious documents, but they're historical documents. And they're important historical documents. They give us a lot of insight. They come with their eyewitness accounts of things that have happened. Um, fantastic things and rather ordinary things. Okay, They're historical documents. And so when we look at how we treat other, historic, other ancient historical documents and the way that we give them authenticity or not, the way that we give them authority or not, it kind of changes our understanding of what, what it is that people say about the Bible. Um, these are commonly cited examples. You don't have to necessarily know th- what these examples are, um, but it's important that you... Uh, just, just listen to the more important aspect of this. There's a book um, by a, a historian, an ancient historian named Thucydides. He wrote The History of the Peloponnesian War. Okay, Old ancient document. Um, maybe you've heard about it in your history classes. Or you've read it in some ancient, you know, ancient uh, literature or whatever. We have, of this book, The History of the Peloponnesian War, we have exactly eight surviving manuscripts. Eight. And the earliest one that we have is 1,300 years removed from the original. So remember, we said that the Bible was written in the 60s, and we have a book, or we have manuscripts that were maybe 60, 70 years after that. The only copies that we have, the earliest copies that we have of the history of the Peloponnesian War, 1,300 years after the original was written, the oldest one that we have. Julius Caesar's Gallic War, we have... Nine or ten readable copies, the earliest of which is 900 years older than the original. Tacitus's Histories and Annals, we only have two manuscripts. One is dating from the 9th century, the other is from the 11th. The original was written in the 1st century. So we have 1st century, uh, first century Bible and copies that were written within 60 years of the original. The Tacitus's Histories, not a thousand years after the original was written. Okay, so that you might ask, okay, how many copies of the Bible do we have? How many ancient manuscripts of the Bible do we have? Five thousand four hundred manuscripts. We have eight copies of the Peloponnesian War, nine of the Gallic War, two of Tacitus's Histories. All a thousand years after, we have 5,400 manuscripts of the Bible, and the earliest ones are 60 years. Okay? Open up your history book and look and see if it doesn't say that Julius Caesar invaded France. And what evidence do we have for that? Eight copies, nine or ten copies, the earliest of which is 900 years after the fact. But we have no problem believing that. People say, yeah, that's historically reliable to say that. We have 5,400 copies of the Bible within 100 years of its writing. People are like, I don't know. I don't know if you can trust it. Copies of copies. That was a lot, you know. Again, it just is intellectually an untenable argument. Does that make sense? But the reason is, what difference does it make if Julius Caesar invaded France? Really. But if Jesus came back from the dead, that changes everything. So even though 
on point on the basis of whether or not we consider something historically reliable and authoritative there's the bible is the most well attested historical document in the history of humankind but we're like i don't know it seems kind of crazy that all of these other does that make sense so i say all of that um those those questions of translations and copies like newsweek is bringing up really uh really hold no water but there's one other element to that, to this idea of copies of copies, because what they're driving at in all of this with the translations of translations and copies of copies is that as this process of translating and copying has happened, errors have crept in. Okay? And so have you ever heard someone say that? Well, the Bible's full of errors or it's full of mistakes. Okay? And if you look, and, I'll, and I'll, look, I'll say this. I'll be the first one to admit this. If you look at the different, the 5,400 manuscripts that we have, you will find inconsistencies you will find variations between what one says and the other did you know that okay because for some christians that are used to saying the bible is inerrant which it is but you have to know what we mean by that when we say that and then you read one book that tells you that well there's all kinds of discrepancies between one manuscript and another that really calls into question everything that you've heard and you're like how can i trust anything anymore okay so yes between these different manuscripts there are different variations in that but let's talk about what we mean by that, okay? Because these are copies. They, like I said, they didn't, have, they, they didn't have printing presses. They didn't have uh, big machines where they could just print off facsimiles of the same thing over and over. They had to copy it. If it was going to get circulated around, and the fact that we have 5,400 left for over 2,000 years of history means that these things got copied all the time so that they could get circulated around because they were so important. And, and so we know that, yeah, they were getting copied. But then we have to know about how those copies and those processes happened. There were usually, back then, people whose job it was to copy stuff. They were called scribes. Because not everybody knew how to read and not everybody knew how to write. And so there were people whose job it was to be scribes and make copies of stuff. And they were good at it. And so a lot of times what would happen is... Paul would write a letter or send a letter to somebody and the church would have a scribe in the church or they'd hire a scribe and they'd say, hey, can you make some copies of this letter that the apostle Paul just sent us so that we can have copies and we can distribute these copies and send them to other churches because he told us, you read that in the Bible, he says, have this read to the, in these other churches. So they would write copies and they would do that. But you know what? Sometimes they didn't have scribes and so they'd say, hey, Jim Bob, well, you, 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 know how, you learned how to write in third grade. Can you do this? And so he would do that. And so, of course, in that process, sometimes mistakes would happen. Have you ever tried to like copy your teacher's notes when they put something up on the slide and then you go back and you read it and you're like, what in the heck did I, you know, because you're just trying to, you're just trying to write it down. Okay. But for the most part, you know what, you can figure out what you were saying, right? When we talk about the variations or the, incon the inconsistencies or the errors, the discrepancies in the New Testament manuscripts that we have, and people will bring this up, I want you to know that well over 99% of those variations have to do with just little scribal errors like that. So when they say, oh, there's errors in the Bible, you can't trust it. Actually, that's not quite uh, what it is. I want, you to, I want you to read this paragraph. Read through that to yourself.
Everybody get through it? Yeah. Anybody see any errors in that paragraph? Just a couple. Yeah. Anybody have any problem reading it? Okay. So we said sometimes it was just accidental. For example, letters that looked similar might be switched out for each other. So that's not an L, that's the number one. That's not a D, that's the letter B. One word might be substituted for another one, W-O-N, that sounded the same when read. Words might be skipped. Oh, I didn't, there's no B. Words might skipped, but you know there's a B there. Words or letters might be B doubled. Okay? Any problem figuring out what this actually says? So when we're looking at the errors in the manuscripts, most of the time it's just stuff like this. And so like he says, it's a bit like solving a logic puzzle. Actually, and we don't have time, I wish we could. If you wanted to, I could go into all kinds of geeky stuff about this whole process, about how they read these manuscripts and figure this stuff out. And, and, and it really is, because sometimes they have some things that say this, and sometimes they have some things that say this, and you can sort of see that these um, errors have circulated in certain geographic regions because you can kind of trace it back to which one said which at the which time. And so you're just trying to line it up. But it's really not that hard. And so, like I said, with 99% efficiency, we have no problem knowing what the original Bible said. Especially if we're talking about when the farthest goes back, we're doing copies of the original. Okay? It's not a problem. Most of the stuff is just like this. Every once in a while, there will be something where a scribe has added something. Sometimes they thought... Oh, this will, this will help make the understanding a little clearer. And so they'll put in a few more words. Sometimes they'll think, yeah, that probably shouldn't be in there. That doesn't make sense. They'll take stuff out. Sometimes that has happened. Okay? But if you took the stuff like that, or sometimes it's like it says a whole different word, and we're not sure which the original word was. Okay? So sometimes that stuff comes in. And if and when that has happened, if you were to take all of those and put them together, it would probably amount to like a couple pages. Of verses that were affected by stuff like that. And if you have a good copy of the Bible, like mine, I said, is the English Standard Version, and you read the New Testament, and you look at the bottom, there's little footnotes, and it will tell you some manuscripts say this. Okay? And I've read all of those, and if you look through that, and you look at those little manuscripts, there is not one major essential Christian doctrine that is called into any kind of question because of one of those footnotes. There's not anything that I am at a loss for because of the, the slight variations that happen in those manuscripts. So do we have, with 100% perfect, accurate knowledge, what the original copy of the Bible said? No. What we have is 99%, and that 1% is superficial at best. Does that make sense? And so when we use the word inerrant, you may not know this, but when we use the word inerrant, that actually only refers to the original documents. Did you know that? Okay. That that actually only refers to the original documents. But we have 99% certainty what those original documents said, and so we have no problem using the word inerrant. Does that make sense? But that doesn't mean that it's what we have now is, is free from manuscript variations, but they're totally minor. Does that make sense? If you don't have a good Bible that's telling you what those footnotes are, I would encourage you to get one. So, all of those things, those are textual issues. 
you don't even need to remember all of that. I just need you to know that that's going to get brought up a lot. People are going to say, uh, translations, copies, things like that. And you just need to be confident that that's bogus. And they're probably just saying that because the Discovery Channel said that. Or they're probably just saying that because they read that Newsweek article or their friend told them that. All you need to know is, yeah, that's not true. And you can press back and say, hey, can we actually do some research on that? Because I don't think that's how it works. Got it? So, any of that, translations, copies, manuscripts, everything, intellectually untenable arguments. That's one big objection that I hear all the time. The other big objection that I hear all the time is, what about contradictions in the Bible? So, not whether or not we can even trust the copy of the Bible that we have, but if we're trusting that this is originally what the Bible said, what do you do with the places where the Bible contradicts itself? Because if this is the word of God, so the logic goes, then you would see that it's consistent. It doesn't ever contradict itself. Okay? So have you heard some of these? The Bible's full of contradictions. Well, again, if someone is sitting and you're trying to talk to them about the Bible and they say, the Bible's full of contradictions, why do you believe it? You know, the best thing that you can say to them first is, oh, to which contradictions might you be referring? They say, the Bible's full of contradictions. Really? Where? Because again, and you're not being snarky about that, okay? Genuinely ask, oh, where? Because if that's true, I want to know that. And, and I will bet you, 99 times out of 100, they just know to say that there are contradictions in the Bible. They don't actually know any. Because they haven't read it. Okay? So you ask them, please, will you show me some contradictions in the Bible? And they probably won't even be able to show you. And so then you say, so is it really fair for you to say that it's full of contradictions if you never read it? You know, I said that to a girl on campus one time. Maybe I shouldn't have. I don't know. But we were doing the Bible trivia activity. You know, we got the table and we do the Bible trivia and we give away the candy and it's fun, you know. Um, because, and it's meant to raise that very question because everybody thinks that they're an expert on the Bible and why they don't have to believe it. And with just a few simple questions, you can show that they really have no idea about anything about the Bible. And I was talking to a girl. She came up to our table and I said, hey, do you want to play this game? And she goes, no, I don't. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a Muslim. I don't believe in the Bible. And I was like, why not? Well, why not? She goes, well, it's full of contradictions. And I said, have you ever read it? And she said, well, no. I said, so how do you know there's contradictions in it? And then she just kind of was like, do you know that there's contradictions? Or did just somebody tell you that there's contradictions? And she got mad at me and just walked away. Okay. So nine times out of ten, you just ask that question. But, Every once in a while, you're going to talk to somebody, and they're going to say, yeah, no, here, let me show you. I'll show you some contradictions. And the nature of those contradictions might be one like this. This is Proverbs 26. Not only is this from Proverbs 26, take note, these are verses 4 and 5. So these verses are right next to each other in the Bible. Listen to this. Verse 4. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Verse 5. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Verse 4. Answer not a fool according to his folly. Verse 5. Answer a fool according to his folly. What's that about? You ever read Proverbs? I remember the first time when I saw that, and I'm like, what in the world? Okay, like, is the proverb writer schizophrenic? Is he, like, confused about, you know, like, dude, you just said not to answer a fool and his folly, and now you're saying answer a fool in his folly. Which is it? Like, if you're going to contradict yourself, Bible, at least spread it out a few books. But these are 
right up next against each other. Which means that the writer of the proverb wasn't an idiot. He was making a point, wasn't he? What do you think the point is? Why do you think he wrote those verses that seem to contradict each other? One seems like it's kind of like don't stoop to the fool's level. The Uh other one is still address the fact that he's being a fool lest he continue in his foolishness. Okay. Yeah. So I think what you're getting at is they're speaking to slightly different aspects of that situation. Or they could be speaking to slightly different situations. Right? And that there's wisdom in both. And that he's... Because the Proverbs are basically all just tools that you put in your tool belt until the appropriate situation arises and you pull them out. And so he's given you these two tools to use in slightly different situations. And how are you supposed to know which situation to use it in? But by wisdom. But by the guidance of the Holy Spirit. That what he's actually saying is, I wish life were so easy that I could just give you a black and white statement, but life is complicated. And because life is complicated, I've got to give you some different things that apply to different situations. They're not contradictory, only in the fact that life is a little contradictory sometimes. You're in situations that are just different. If uh, when my kid is finally born, and they grow up, and they play football, and I go to the football game, and I'm standing on the sidelines, I'm going to yell, run, run, run! Okay? If later that day we go to the pool, I'm going to yell, don't run! Okay? If somebody were to just write down my words and then hold them up right next to each other, they would say, wow, Chase is so contradictory. He contradicts himself all the time. But is that, is that true? No. We know that you've yanked that out of context. But in their context, they're both appropriate. The same is true with the Bible. And I think a lot of times what people are talking about in, when they say contradictions are referring in on a scale to something like this. Okay? great example of this is the book of Job. Okay? If you take what the, old, the rest of the books of the Old Testament talk about, and they talk about the idea of blessing and curses, that, that God will bless you for obedience, but then there are curses that follow from disobedience, which is true. And then you read the book of Job, where a guy is getting cursed, even though he's been obedient, and he can't figure it out. Those things seem to be contradictory. But actually what they're doing is they're giving a broader picture of the multifaceted nature that is human existence. And that sometimes things just don't fit into our paradigms. And that's what's, if you've read Job, that's what's going on with Job's friends. Is Job's friends have a very narrow-minded black and white understanding because they only have one side. They only have the Old Testament up to that point. You know, they only have this understanding of God that exists in blessings and curses. But Job pushes our boundaries of understanding and says that, no, this is more complicated than you would like it to be in this real narrow framework. And it seems contradictory, but actually what it's saying is that there's just tension in life. Could you imagine if we didn't have the book of Job? Okay? That we would be missing out on this other understanding that, yeah, sometimes things happen that seem bad, but they're not happening because we're, we've done bad. But God is higher, and he's sometimes doing things beyond our understanding for different reasons. 
Okay? And that adds to our understanding of existence. Another great example is the book of James. Okay? And I love that James and Hebrews are butted right up against each other. Where Hebrews is all about Christ is our atoning sacrifice and how we're saved by faith in Christ. Okay? And you have all the, the books that Paul wrote okay? that you're saved by grace through faith. This is not your own doing, not the result of work so that no one may boast. And then you get to the book of James and he says, show me your faith. Without works, and I will show you my faith by my works, that faith without works is dead. And a lot of people want to say, look, they're contradicting each other. Paul is saying that you're saved by grace without works, but James is talking about works. And so are they contradictory? No. They're giving a more broad, well, multi-orbed understanding of our faith. So this is an important understanding for you, that if you're not reading all of the Bible... You are, you are narrowing the understanding that God wants us to have of existence. Does that make sense? If you haven't read Job, or you haven't read it in a while, you may be forgetting the extent of these experiences that God is trying to equip you for. If you haven't read James, if all you read is Paul, you're going to have a very narrow understanding of how the world works. But God's not contradictory. Not contradictory. The world is just complicated. And that's actually a really good proof. Because like, if you read the Quran, in my opinion, the Quran is very one-dimensional, very shallow. It's not speaking into a complex understanding of life because it was written by men. That's okay, my opinion. Uh, I'd argue it's more than an opinion. Um, you read other religious texts. They're kind of shallow. But if you read the Bible, they're speaking into consistently a very complicated understanding. Because our God, who's revealing his thoughts to man, knows that man's life is complicated. And God is even more complicated than that. And so he's able to speak into it. Does that make sense? So they're not contradictions. So we need to know the difference between contradictions and diversity. Okay? Diversity of life experiences, diversity of different things that we're saying. Okay. And also with that, it's important to note that not all of the Bible is uh, the same genre. This is a whole other topic that we're not going to go too much into. But the Bible is not just like a textbook, like we would read it. Okay, The Bible is, um, some of the Bible is poetry, and some of the Bible is history, and some of the Bible is narrative. Some of the Bibles are letters, Okay, and they're all going to have different purposes, different audiences, written in different times, like I said, by different authors. So we should actually expect to see a lot of differences. The incredible thing is that the Bible was written by over 30 different authors in a span that covers 2,000 years, and that it's remarkably consistent. Okay, That that actually is proof that God was writing this thing. Because I have... I have a hard time not contradicting when I would write like a 10-page research paper. I'd have a hard time not contradicting myself in the 10 pages, you know. But the Bible never really contradicts itself, okay? Not besides this sense of being diverse and speaking into different situations. But if you take that into account, the Bible never contradicts itself, even though it was written by all of these different guys over thousands of years. That's amazing. It's all telling this one story. There's all these things that just tie through the entire, the entire thing. Okay, that's how you know that a God is writing it. 
But there's another kind of aspect that when, when people talk about contradictions, and this is sort of the last thing that we'll talk about with contradictions, that I think uh, that probably for all of the objections, this might have the most merit. Okay, so this is the one that's not just easily dismissed with, yeah, you're not actually, um, you're not, you don't know what you're talking about. Okay, um, and this is when we have this particularly applies to when we have narrative accounts or histories in the Bible. Okay, so when you have, like, for instance, um, uh, parallel narratives. So First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings are telling the same story that First and Second Chronicles are telling. Okay, so the story of sort of the uh, birth of the monarchy in Israel, the rise of David and the different kings and what happened with the exile and things like that. They're telling the same history. One was written... During and leading up to the exile into Babylon, the other was written after their return from Babylon. But they're telling the same history, but they're written to different audiences. They have different purposes for why they're written, but they're telling the same history. And if you lined those things up, you would see that sometimes when they're describing similar events, they describe things a little differently. For example, this is kind of interesting. When Chronicles talks about David killing Goliath, it says that he has help. Somebody's there helping him. What's that about? Most of us probably don't spend much time reading Chronicles that closely because we think it's just extra, which is not what it is. It's, it's an intentional retelling of the story that Samuel doesn't talk about David having help when he fights Goliath. It sounds like it's all him by himself, doesn't it? So what do you do with that? Okay. The same thing is true with the uh, Gospels, the Gospel narratives. Okay, that we have four Gospels that are all talking about the same events, the life and especially the death, the burial, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus. And so when we take those four accounts and we put them up against each other, we see lots of times where sometimes one guy will describe something that's not even in the other books, or sometimes they'll both describe those things. But, for instance, when Jesus flips over the tables in the temple... The synoptic writers put that as happening near the end of his, so the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, Luke, okay, those three, they put that happening near the end when Jesus comes into Jerusalem. It's almost at the end of the book. When John talks about flipping the tables over, it happens at the very beginning of the book. So which is it? Did he do it at the beginning? Did he do it at the end? That makes some people, when they're trying to harmonize the gospel, say, well, he must have done it twice, which I think is ridiculous. Okay. But what do you do with that? Because they're in different chronological orders. Or what do you do when they get different details? I think one of the most famous examples... Um, hold on, let me... I'm skipping ahead here. One of the most famous examples... This is from Matthew. This is when the, the ladies come to the tomb on Easter Sunday. Behold, there was a great earthquake... For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing was white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. This is from Mark, the same account. Looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe. And they were alarmed. This is from Luke. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But then when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And while they were perplexed about this, behold, 
two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? So they're all three describing the same account. Matthew says that there was one angel that rolled away the stone and was sitting on the stone when they got there. Mark says that when they got there, they looked in. It doesn't even use the word angel. It says a young man, but he was seated in white robes, or he was wearing white robes, kind of the same description, but it was a young man in the tomb. But then Luke, what does Luke say? There were two angels, okay, who appeared in dazzling apparel and stood by and talked to them. So what is it? Is it one angel? Is it outside? Was it inside? Were there two angels? Those are contradictions. How can we trust the Bible when they can't even get their story straight? Here's what we're going to do. Because I've got a little bit of an activity that I think serves to make this point and answers this question. So I need two volunteers and we need to take a five minute break. Okay? So go use the restroom, go grab a cup of water, do whatever, and then... We're going to come back in here, and we're going to show this. I'm going to talk, and I'm going to answer those questions, and then we'll be done. We'll be ready to to question and answer. Okay, so who would like to be my volunteers? Okay, so welcome back. Uh, What I'm going to have us do is, Dan, you're one of my volunteers. Will you go stand out in the hall and shut the door? Me? Yes. Courtney, can you uh, just answer a couple of questions? For the rest of us, okay, and speak speak kind of loudly. You can stay. You can stay seated, but just speak up. So, Courtney, you two are one of my uh, volunteers. Yeah. Where were you just now? I was in your office. You're in my office. What did you see in my office? Um, I saw bookshelves, lots of books on the shelves. Saw a whiteboard with. Different details of stuff that you have planned for the week. You had a letter and some other things on your desk on this wall. And then you had a table and some chairs for the discipleship. You had a scripture from 2 Timothy, like 4.12 or 4.17, like right here on the wall. Okay. Okay. Great. Computer. Yeah. Okay. Great. Good job. Okay, Dan, you're back in the room. Have a seat. Uh, just, just speak kind of loudly. Uh, where did I have you just before, while we were during the break? Where were you during the break? I was in your office. Okay. Uh, describe to us my office. Uh, there are three walls, all of which are white, one of which has a Bible verse on it. One has a green wall. There is a desk in the uh, upper left-hand corner of the office that is a kind of bubbly form of L-shape. Next to that on the right is a bookshelf that is completely filled with uh, spiritual and theological books uh, and some random assorted action figurines and other such (laughs) uh, assorted things. Uh, There is a giant whiteboard on the right wall uh, which is littered with uh, uh, 
people that or people's names and scheduling and all this other stuff. Uh -huh. There's the movable whiteboard in front of that with all the beach reach scheduling. Okay. Uh, there is a table in the back left corner of the office uh, with three chairs uh, that are yeah, the... All right, we get it. Nice Thanks, Dan. <laughs> okay. So, thank you, Dan and Courtney. Um, did you hear similarities in the accounts that they were giving in my office? Yes. Did you hear differences? Yes. Dan mentioned that there is a green wall in my office. Courtney said nothing about a green wall. You must not like my green wall. But that wasn't that wasn't pertinent to what you were trying to say. Yeah, but Dan was trying to describe the office. There was a green wall. He also mentioned my action figures. You didn't say anything about my action figures. You mentioned a letter that was on my desk. Dan didn't say anything about that. Dan went into a little greater detail describing uh, what was on my whiteboard. But you guys both mentioned that there was a whiteboard. Same with my desk, things like that. Actually, what I think is interesting is, um, Dan, that big movable whiteboard was in my office this morning, but Jeremiah had pulled it out. I saw him taking it out right before we walked in there. So you were remembering something from another time. Your memory was a little faulty. Uh, isn't that interesting? Okay. Not to, not to say that that has bearings on the Bible necessarily, but it does. Okay. If you think about some of the things that they're describing, they didn't know when some of the stuff was happening that they were going to have to write it down later. Okay. I don't know how you would respond if you saw an angel, but taking a photographic detailed memory of what was happening at that moment would not be the first thing on my mind. I would be freaking out because I just saw an angel. Okay. So uh, another thing, you said there were chairs in my office, you said there were three chairs in my office. There are actually four chairs in my office, okay? That doesn't mean that you're wrong. There are three chairs around that table. There was just another chair that you've decided not to mention. Could there have been at least two angels, but Mark was talking about this one? Does it leave out the possibility that there was another angel on the scene elsewhere, or maybe more angels than the two that we saw. It happens, okay? When you're recounting details, you are focused on certain details. We don't expect, well, maybe we do, and this is one of those things where there's a difference between um, the way that we maybe think about history and the way that these other writers think about history, and that adds to the problem of the chronology, what we just talked about, okay? The... The way that some accounts will put one thing at a certain point and others will put it at another point. When we think about doing history, when we think about writing down an account of things, we have a post-enlightenment, scientific, modernistic way of thinking about how this process happens. For us, because we've gone through the scientific revolution, we think that everything needs to have just the facts and every fact and every possible detail that can be recalled and written down as um, neutral as in, in as neutral a way as possible so that we can make uh, unbiased observations about that thing. That's how we think about history. That's how we think a good history textbook is unbiased and it's just including all of the facts and we're just trying to compile all of that stuff. And we think, ooh, that's good history. 
Okay? I'm not saying that that's wrong for us to think that way, but that's not the way that the first century writers or the writers of the Bible thought about history. Okay? And, and they, didn't, they didn't see the need, they didn't feel this burden like we do to write every single observation possible so that we can make an unbiased opinion about it. Okay? They were thinking, I need to write down the things that are important so that you can come to a very biased opinion about these things. They were using history as a means of communicating a bigger truth. Okay? They didn't feel this need that we feel to be unbiased. Because guys, you know what? Nobody's unbiased. Okay? We, at least they were willing to admit it. All right? Everybody has to make decisions about what they include and what they don't include in stories. Okay? So we can dispense with that myth that there's no such thing as an unbiased observer. So everybody's biased, and so we should see. But it's not like they're in a biased, I use that word, because we think biased means you're trying to deceive or mislead. Okay? That's just another holdover from our post-enlightenment way of thinking about things. But what they're trying to do is they're trying to communicate a certain idea. So that doesn't mean that it's not historical or it's not factual. But what it does mean is that they're only choosing to reveal, to include certain things to tell us. Okay? And we know also that that doesn't mean that they're not going to write down some of the things that you would probably leave out if you were trying to mislead somebody. If you're really trying to convince somebody that Jesus had come back from the dead, you wouldn't tell all of these other people in the first century that the ones who discovered it were women. Because women made bad, for bad eyewitnesses. They, were, they weren't considered as reliable as men. Okay? But that's who the Bible uses. That actually gives a lot of credence to the... And I, I don't think, ladies, you guys are un, you know, unfit to be eyewitnesses. That was just kind of the culture that they were in at the time. The Bible doesn't affirm that. That's just what everybody thought. But they used that. Okay? So it doesn't mean that they're not historical. All it means is that they had a bias. John himself admits this in John chapter 20. He says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. So he himself is admitting, this is not an exhaustive account of all of the things that Jesus did. Actually, at the end of the book of John, he says, Were all the things that Jesus did to be written down? I'm not sure that all the books in the world could contain them. Okay? Because they were so marvelous in that Jesus is so indescribable. Okay? He's saying, and here in John 20, He did many other things which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. John has a reason for what he recorded in the Bible. And he has a reason for what he put in certain ways. This is just something that we have to get over is that when they do history, they will move stuff around. Okay? None of the Gospels line up chronologically because they weren't as concerned with telling things in a chronological order as thematically. That was just the style of writing then. And so John puts the, the flipping over the tables at the beginning because he's trying to make a certain theological point. The other writers have it at the end because they're trying to make different theological points. Same with all of these other things. Does that make sense? So they're trying to make a point. And John's point is that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. The same is true for Luke. And listen, l- listen to the way that Luke is going about this process historically. Okay, but he still has an objective. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that have been taught, you have been taught. 
So he's saying there are eyewitnesses and ministers and we went around and talked to them. And I'm a credible historian because I've followed these things closely for a time. And so I set out to write an orderly account of what happened so that Theophilus, who's a Christian, might have more certainty concerning the things that he's been taught. So Luke and John both set out with objectives to write down accounts for the reason of aiding the believers in, or aiding people to believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that in believing they may have eternal life. So they're both setting out to write down this history, but they're both writing out, talking to different witnesses. Okay? It's kind of cool if you think about reading Luke because Luke's got, you, you know, it's from Luke that we really find out the most about what happened with Mary when uh, the angel came to her and she conceived and everything that happened with Mary. You know how Luke probably knows that? So he went and asked Mary. Isn't that kind of cool? Okay? These are history documents. And Luke went around and he went to Mary's house and he said, Hey Mary, tell me about how this happened again. And he kind of wrote down what Mary said happened to her. I just think that's really cool. Okay? Mark was a companion of Peter. So Mark is writing and he talks a lot about things that happen in closed rooms with just the apostles. You know how? Because Peter told them. And Peter is saying, this is what happened. This is how it went. But we're going to see a little bit of discrepancies, and that's actually a good thing. Did you know that in a court of law, this is, this is a good little thing to put in your pocket. In a court of law, if you have four eyewitnesses that have all said that they've seen a crime happen, and the judge brings them in one by one, and the first person says, here's what I saw happen. I saw her with a gun shoot him. It was on this street. They did it like that. He says, okay, thank you. And he sits down. Brings the next eyewitness in. You tell, tell me what you saw. Here's what I saw happen. I saw her with the gun shoot him. It happened on this street. And she says verbatim the exact same thing that the first guy says. The judge is going to say, hold on a minute. Bring the third guy in. What happened? If he says verbatim the exact same thing, that, that all the exact same details, left nothing out, they completely agree on every point, everything's there. Before the fourth guy even comes in, the judge is going to throw the whole case out. Because he's going to say, these eyewitnesses have colluded. They have talked to each other beforehand to get their stories to line up. This is no longer reliable eyewitnesses. This is a conspiracy. And I'm going to throw it out. And the evidence for that is because there's no differences in their stories. Okay? You guys were both sitting in my office at the same time. And you described things the same, you described the same situation, but you gave us different details. And that rings true to us, doesn't it? We know, we recognize, oh, that, you guys were really in there. And you're really noticing different things. If I had fed you what to say, and you guys said the exact same things, everybody would be like, that's kind of weird. Where are they getting that from? So actually the fact that the Gospels have differences... Not disagreements, not contradictions, but different details is actually proof that something really happened. And if you, especially if you think about the things that they are describing, okay, that for all of them, they all agree that there was a man, Jesus, and that he did miracles and signs and wonders, and he broke every paradigm that they had for the way that the universe was supposed to work, and they had no way of explaining it. And most of all, they saw that man, Jesus, hanged on a cross and die and be laid in the ground. And then three days later, he came out of the grave. And they all talk about it. 
And they all say that they saw, or that men saw this man Jesus who was dead, raised from the dead, walking around, talking, eating with them, going through locked doors somehow, revealing himself to other people, ascending into heaven. Okay? And none of that, when they're describing those things, it's like they're almost grasping for the details to describe it because it was so incredible. But it doesn't sound like they're making stuff up. Okay? If they were making up the fact that Jesus had come back from the dead, they would have said it was like a lot cooler than it actually was. You know? They would have said, like, there was this amazing explosion, and then Jesus came out glowing with like this host of angels behind him, and he revealed himself to everybody, and he had like an AK-47 in one hand. <laughs> and you know, like if I was making stuff up, I would go crazy. But what do they describe? Mary thought he was the gardener. He was walking on the road and people didn't recognize him. He sat down and he just ate fish with them. All of this rings of reality. It rings of being true. It's not fantastic. It's genuine. They genuinely saw a man come back from the dead. And this is the point that Paul makes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas. That is Peter. And then to the twelve. And then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Most of whom are still alive. Though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James Then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. So for everything else that these things are describing, Paul is saying the thing of most importance is that we have eyewitnesses who saw Jesus die and then saw him come back from the dead. And he says, Jesus, this living, raised from the dead Jesus, appeared to more than 500 people. And I love that he says, and some of whom are still alive. Why does he say that? Because at the time that he's writing this, he goes, you can go ask them. And all of this rings of genuineness. And then you look into these other factors. Okay, sorry, this just gets me excited. Look into these other factors, okay? Um, The start of the Christian church was primarily Jewish, right? What day was the Sabbath for the Jews? Saturday. What day do we go to church? Sunday. Sunday. The Jews practiced Sabbath every Saturday for centuries. And then in one year, all of a sudden, this small Jewish sect started worshiping and gathering together on Sundays. Now what besides something remarkable and unfathomable would have gotten a bunch of Jews to stop observing the Sabbath and start worshiping on Sunday if something incredible hadn't happened on a Sunday. That is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Okay? Do you get that? Also, when you read the rest of 1 Corinthians 15, that whole chapter is about our hope in being bodily raised from the dead. That Paul is saying, you're not going to stay dead. That's why he describes them even here as having fallen asleep. Now, they're not dead, they're just sleeping, and we're going to be raised from the dead. And that whole community was marked by a certainty in the resurrection. Why did they have so much certainty in the resurrection? They had already seen it happen once. Okay? And they were so certain about it 
that all of the apostles save one were martyred rather than denying what they had seen, a man raised from the dead. Something happened on Easter. Something happened 2,000 years ago. And we can see these historical documents and you can say, for whatever else you want to think about it, there's a community of people in the first century who swear up and down that they saw something unbelievable happen. Okay? And either they were crazy or they're lying or it really happened. And again, you read this stuff, I don't think they're crazy. And if they're lying, why would they have gone to their deaths? Nobody goes gets fed to lions for a lie. Okay? Something happened. And don't miss what really happened, okay? Jesus was raised from the dead. He died for our sins and was raised. This is what Hebrews chapter 1 says. Long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the, by the prophets. But in these last, he said most clearly through his son. And the thing that he wanted to say above all else is that I love you. We talked about the relationship at the very beginning. I want to have a relationship with you. And your sin has caused a separation between us. And so rather than you trying to come to me, which you can't, I am coming to you in the form of my son. This is me speaking to you. And I love that it says, through whom he also created the world. How did did God create the world? By speaking. And how does God recreate us? By sending his word out, his son. To recreate us. To die and be raised from the dead. If Jesus was raised from the dead, that means that your sins are forgiven. If you believe in Jesus, that means you too have been raised from the dead. All of this is serving that point. All of the Bible is making that point. So again, this is what John was saying when he wrote his gospel. These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. The Son of God. And that by believing you may have life in his name. Sum up the entire Bible. It is the story of God's son. And how we may have life. And that's why we need to read it. And that's why we need to be equipped to go out and share it with everybody else. Because there's no other way that people may have life. And have that relationship with God. But through this word. Amen. Okay. Got some questions. Okay. So Mormons, yeah, they have um, they have a whole extra set of books that were written much, much, much later. Yeah, and and a belief that yeah they still have prophets and people talking to them. So um, how do we speak into that? Um, and there's kind of a an idea in theology uh, called the sufficiency of Scripture, which I actually have I think has a lot of bearing when you're talking to Mormons. And the idea of the sufficiency of Scripture is this, that sufficient means it is all that is necessary. Right? Sufficient doesn't mean it's everything that there possibly could be. Right? And John kind of says that to you. If I, Jesus did other things. I could write other things down. But this is written so that you may believe. 
Um, the book of Revelation, which is kind of talking about Revelation, but it's fitting that it's the end. At the end, it says, Cursed be anyone that adds anything else to this book. Okay? And so the question is, uh, Christians, since the really the second century, have been convinced that we don't need any other scripture. We're done. You know? And so a lot of times when you're talking to Mormons... Um, or anybody that has these other is looking for these other additions, or like, do I need more revelation? You know, do we need do we need prophets? Okay, um, one of the best ways to kind of go about it is: is there anything missing here that we need? You know, why did Joseph Smith need another vision? And actually, when you look at the stuff that Joseph Smith said, it contradicts the stuff that is said in in this book. You know, but what? Why isn't this enough? I was just talking with a girl the other day, um, and she's got a friend that's a Mormon, and he was like, hey, you want to read the Book of Mormon with me? And she said, well, no, I don't. You know, I don't. Um, but then I said, I told her, I was like, well, Mormons believe that the Old and New Testaments are also the Word of God. They just never read it, okay? Rarely do they read it. They read the Book of Mormon. And so I said to her, I said, why don't you say, why don't we read the New Testament? Since we both agree about that, let's just read that, you know? But to kind of put it to, why do is why is this not enough? So I've asked Mormons that before. What am I missing here that I that I should know about? You know, mm-hmm. and it'll really expose one. I just think a lot of cracks in their understanding about anything. You know, um, but then that kind of and, and somebody asked me that question in the seminar too. Do should there uh, are there prophets now? You know, because we talked about God speaking to prophets and God doing that now. Um, different. Christian, evangelical Christian denominations and traditions have different opinions to that question, okay? But what we would all agree on is that we, even were there to be prophets now, we wouldn't think of it in the same way that we would think of Amos was a prophet, you know, where it's somebody that God is um, speaking through and everything that comes out of their mouth is authoritatively the word of God anymore. Okay, we no, because we think we have everything that we need. We don't need anything else, you know. So if God is doing anything, he's really just pointing us back to truths that have already been revealed in the scriptures and that we need reminders of, you know. Um, and and so if somebody comes in and saying like, "Man, there's just there's a fourth member of the Trinity. God just revealed it to me." We would say, "No," but which is sort of the amount is similar to what Mormons have amounted to, what the, what the teaching of Joseph Smith has amounted to, is something as radical as adding a fourth person to the Trinity. Okay? It's that far off from what this is actually saying. Um, but I, you know, what I, I personally don't think that there are prophets anymore. I think God can, can tell people stuff, you know, but it's always going to be exactly in line with this. I don't think that that's normative. I think we have everything that we need. And there was one person that asked me before. He said, hey, have you ever gotten, like, have you ever had a prophecy or, or a vision? Like, have you ever gotten a word from the Lord? And, again, maybe I'm a little snarky. But I grabbed my Bible and I said, man, I get a word from the Lord every morning. Okay? And a lot of, you know, and, and it's admirable in a way. I think people want a, a certain kind of experience with God, a deep experience from God. And they're like, I just wish that I could hear from God. I wish that I could have a vision. Or I wish that I could have... You know, I just want to hear from God that way. And I just want to say, brother or sister, are you listening to God through this? Like, have you really unearthed, 
dug up all of the treasure that this is, because I don't think that you have. I think if you were really uh, appealing to the Bible and you were really just trying to soak all this in, you'd find what the psalmist says in Psalm 19, that this is like more valuable than gold. These words. And in Psalm 19, they didn't, they just, he, you know, he just had the Old Testament. You didn't even have Isaiah. Okay? And he said, this is more valuable than gold. Um, and so my encouragement is, you know, to anybody, which is that question of prophets and things like that, and that's a whole other category and gifts and continuation and things like that, but um, this, is this enough? And let's see if, I always kind of put that challenge to people like, hey, let's read this and see if we run out of options. Like, let's see if this isn't answering our questions. And if we need more, then we'll have to go and try and find more elsewhere. But I guarantee you, you won't need more. Does that make sense? And there's a whole other, talking to Mormons, there's a whole other, there's all sorts of categories that, um, it's, you're really, it's really apples and oranges on so many levels when you're talking to Mormons that, um, it's, you know, because another, another great thing is, when, when was the Book of Mormon written? It was like in the 1800s, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Why'd God wait so long? You know, and they'll say, well, it got lost and it got, you know, okay, but what, so there's a lot in that, you know. Um, but that's a good question. That's good. Any other questions? Somebody in the seminar asked a question about what, why do we have what books of the Bible that we have? Okay, which I think is a very good question. Um, why, why do the Roman Catholics have extra books in their Bible? You know, did you know that? Um, that they have six more books in their Bible than, than Protestants have in the 66 that we have, yes? Doesn't it say in the book of Joseph that, uh-huh. uh, There, um, I don't know about the book of Joseph. There is a dragon in the Apocrypha, yeah, in the, in the yeah. book of Daniel. I looked up on the net one time and went like, yep. why is this? Yeah, so, so, in, so in the Roman Catholic, uh, in the Roman Catholic canon, there's uh, some extra chapters in Daniel, and one of them has Daniel fighting a dragon. Um, and there are other things. So what do we do? So why do we have the books that we have in the Bible? How did that get decided, you know? And a lot of times you hear people talk about that, and the way that it kind of, it's described is um, at the Council of Nicaea, they took all the books that they had, and everybody voted on which ones they wanted in and which ones they wanted out. You ever heard sort of a narrative like that? Or, you know, the yeah. church, the church decided what books go in the Bible, and that they were being sort of deceptive in what books they included, so they only included the books that met their agenda, and the rest of the books that they felt like threatened whatever they were trying to accomplish, they left out of the Bible so that they could kind of control the narrative that comes out. You heard a, heard a story like that? Again, it's kind of half true. That's a Discovery Channel um, kind of understanding of things in the Da Vinci Code, in that book and in that movie. That's the process that they described for how the Bible, that at the Council of Nicaea, this happened. You know what the funny thing is? The discussion of the Council of Nicaea had nothing to do with the canonization of Scripture. None of that ever happened at the Council of Nicaea. The Council of Nicaea was about the Trinity and the nature of Jesus, really. had nothing to do with the Bible, what books were in the Bible, anything like that. So, and everybody wants to pin a lot of stuff on the Council of Nicaea. So figure out what actually happened at the Council of Nicaea, and then you're, you know, one up on everybody. Because it was, it was about... uh, whether Jesus was fully God or fully man or both or how that happened or how that worked. It didn't have anything to do with it. And actually, there was never a council where they voted on the Bible. 
that never happened. Because when we talk about that, we sort of imagine this like smoke-filled room with a bunch of old white dudes that are like, yeah. you know, trying to control and decide what happened. I think John should go in. Yeah, you know, and they're like bartering and they're like, oh no, this, you know. But that's, that's not how it happened at all, okay? The, what happened, it's actually a really interesting process and, and you can do a lot of research on it, but um, what happened was the church started using certain books as authoritatively the word of God. And they had a pretty general, or general consensus on, yeah, this is scripture. This was, this was written by Peter. Peter was an apostle. And this is valuable as scripture. This was written by Paul. Paul was an apostle. This was written by Mark. Mark was a contemporary of Peter. So a lot of it just had to do with who were the apostles. And we're trusting that the things that they wrote to us authoritatively were those words. And, and so if you look early on in church history, question about that, Jesus knew what the Old Testament was. That one's okay. Um, but there was never, it was just a pretty general consensus. And so what they did was they had books that they said, yeah, this is scripture. And then they had other books that they said, these are helpful. Anybody like to read C.S. Lewis? Yeah. Is C.S. Lewis the word of God? No. But is it helpful? Yeah. And so they had other books that they said, hey, these are really helpful, but they're not the word of God. A lot of books that fit into that category were books that were written in between the Old and the New Testament. And books like First and Second Maccabees, books like um, The Wisdom of Solomon, okay, some of these books that were written at that time that were like, hey, these are really helpful, you know, if the church wants to read them, they'll, they'll gain a lot of benefit from them. But those aren't the scriptures. And some of those books, when they started writing down copies of the Bible, they would include those at the end just because they didn't have bookshelves, you know, they didn't have libraries, so they would just kind of put some of those extra books in the end, but they were like being very clear, this isn't scripture, but we like these books, you know. And then there were some books that were like, this clearly is not scripture. The Gospel of Thomas, okay, Gnostic Gospels, other books, they're like, this disagrees with what all of these other things are saying, okay. And so those are the books that people are like, oh, the, at the Council of Nicaea, they left these books out because they didn't want us to know that Jesus actually got married. Well, no, Jesus didn't get married. You know, that contradicts everything else that we've seen. That's stupid. We know. And so the early church was like, this is crap. We don't want this. And it wasn't until 2000, later, 2000 years later that we rediscovered them. And then we're like, oh, look, they were hiding all this stuff. There's a reason there's not 5,400 manuscripts of the Gospel of Thomas because nobody cared about it. It was stupid. <laughs> until the 21st century and then we were like oh my gosh but with those extra books that the, with those extra books that the Catholics added okay added that's a you know that's a that's a Protestant way of saying it because they would think about it differently but um, for centuries when they would copy the Bible like I said they just had that little appendix at the end that had those helpful books and most of those those were ones that were written in that in between time those helpful books um in for 1600 years the church knew we have 66 books of the bible and then we've got these other ones that are helpful six of which we really like that were written in that intertestamental period during the reformation when uh the protestant church emerged and they became very serious about you know scripture sola scriptura and this is what we have it was then that the Roman Catholic Church trying to solidify and redefine themselves in a counter-reformation added those other books as saying, no, these are authoritatively part of the Bible. So it wasn't until the Reformation that those extra books that we find in the Roman Catholic Bible even got actually treated like Scripture. 
And, and that was sort of, because in those things it sort of reaffirms more traditional Catholic teaching that they added into it. So, but that whole process, and you can go do some more study, it's very, like, if you just do the minimal research, you'll find the truth about what happened with the canonization of Scripture. And it's not mysterious, and it's not conspiratorial, it's not anything else like that. It's pretty straightforward. It just kind of happened. Yeah, it just, it, did, it really did. It's actually, and that's one of the best testaments to it, is that it, is that it just kind of happened. They just knew, you know. And, and it was faithful men being faithful to the scriptures, faithful men and women being faithful to the scriptures. And um, by the fourth century, there was just no question. These are, this is the Bible, you know. So, other questions? Anything else? Thoughts about Bible? You know, we, uh, we said last, nobody asked last time any questions about science or history or things like that. And we didn't really get to talk about that much, so we're actually probably going to do another equipping seminar that's just, is the Bible trustworthy part two, science, okay? Mm-hmm. Or the Bible and science, or something like that. Yeah. So, some of those questions... Is the Bible will, scientifically? Yeah, is the Bible scientifically and historically accurate? So we'll just cover all of that in another equipping seminar, because that's a whole other can of worms. I saw this book on the shelf at Brookshire's once while I was waiting to pick up Q, and it was like a thousand and one biblical scientific facts yeah. and it was like I didn't get to read I didn't read a bunch of it or I didn't do a bunch of study on it but it was like some of them seemed kind of far-fetched but it was kind of interesting that they were even there yeah like one of them was like hey right lightweight or light uh antinomia of particle wave like light particle wave theory don't even know but that big, that that raises the the bigger question of how do Christians even enter into science and talk about those things? So yeah. I think that's all worth talking about in another equipping seminar. Um, let's do this. We just got to an hour and a half, which I think is a great stopping point. Um, I really appreciate you guys being here, and I hope this was helpful. And, and I know it was, it was helpful for me that I didn't have to teach this to an empty room. Uh, so thank y'all so that your friends can have this recording and hopefully it's helpful for them tell them to go listen to it if they didn't get to come um, but I'll pray and then we'll be done for the day one question yes let me let me pray let me pray glad that's on the recording God thank you for revealing your thoughts to man thank you for um what you have revealed to us, that you love us, that you think highly of us, you think we're valuable, valuable enough to send your son to die for us. Thank you that there is so much reliable proof that you came and you died and you rose again. And from that alone could start a lifetime of inquiry and wondering and growing and knowledge wisdom, insight about the grace of God and the love of Christ that even surpasses knowledge. So Lord, I pray that you would not just equip us in this time to talk to other people, but you would equip us to hear from you and that we would desire all the more earnestly to learn about your love for us in Christ and that we would be faithful to your word that we wouldn't just hear what you have to say and then turn away like we forgot it, but that we would hear you as really talking, as giving us commands, as giving us a purpose, that we would live that out, and that we would prove that we love you by loving others, that our faith would not be a dead faith, 
but a faith that's accompanied with works in accordance with what you have told us are your thoughts, your secret thoughts that you've revealed to us. Thank you for revealing your thoughts to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.